Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. We made it. Oh right? my goodness, we made it through 2020. The dumpster fire of a year is over. <laughs> We're on to the next one. <laughs> Turning that page. Actually, 2020 was a pretty rad year for me. <laughs> for you, <sorry>. yeah. <laughs> and it's like I posted on Facebook about it because I always kind of do an end of the year reflection and, and whatnot. And I talk about it on social media and the things that I've set, the goals I set for myself, things that I've accomplished, things that I really want to work on, things that I didn't get done that I wanted to and mm-hmm. that sort of a thing. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry because I know that there are a lot of people that have been very adversely impacted by COVID and that sort of thing. And there have been deaths and there have been a lot of sadness and a lot of isolation and depression and anxiety and all kinds of other things for a lot of people. But this has actually been a phenomenal year for me. Like I have set some goals for myself. I accomplished them. Creatively speaking, I have never felt so like inspired to do stuff and to write and to like create new content and come up with amazing ideas. And I think that I don't know what it is about the kind of environment that we're in right now that has just brought that out. So, well, but you also went through some pretty significant changes. I mean, you packed up and moved across the country and then you, you know, just moved into a new house. So like you had some things going on in your personal life outside of COVID that tend to inspire like a lot of creativity. You know what I mean? Like you changed everything. You moved from San Diego to Illinois. Like that's a big, yeah. New (laughs) house sold our other house which I never thought we would leave. It was like a dream house. It was brand new. It was beautiful. It was like a, a demo model home. It, it was fully mm-hmm. furnished. It had, it was nothing that I thought that I needed. The yard was perfectly done. Like it was spacious. It was gorgeous. It was in a beautiful mm-hmm. brand new neighborhood. Like I never thought that I would want to leave that. And then all of a sudden, about halfway through the year, my partner was like, hey, I'm bored here. I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. And I was just like, what? Yeah, wow. <laughs> my whole world was like <laughs> yeah. exploding before my eyes. And this was not, um, this was the year before last year. It was like 2019, halfway through 2019, he said he didn't want to be there anymore. And I, he wasn't trying to leave me or like end our relationship, but he was like, I feel stagnant. I feel like I'm not going mm-hmm. anywhere with my career. I'm tired of how expensive everything is in California. We have this big, beautiful, expensive house, but are we just getting deeper and deeper in debt? Are we doing Mm -hmm. things financially responsible for our future? And Mm -hmm. the answer to that was no. So we decided as a team to look into other things that we could do, other places we could potentially go where the cost of living would be less, where we could still raise a family and... That was also something we decided on that we are, we're going to start a family. And so yeah, there were a lot of different factors that went into it. And I'd been in California for 15 years. I moved to California straight out of law school. And I knew from a very young age that I wanted to get out of Washington State. I knew I didn't want to be yeah. there. I knew I wanted to be someplace warm and sunny. And California, San Diego in particular, was always somewhere that I wanted to be. I don't know why. I'd never been there. I'd never visited there. But I knew it was someplace that I always wanted to be. And then mm-hmm. when I moved there, I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Like you can hike all year long. It's beautiful. You've got the ocean, you've got the desert and, and it is beautiful. But I really didn't go anywhere like, as mm-hmm. far as my career wise. Like I just kind of sat 
in a little bit of a hole. Like, it's not that I'm not accomplished. It's not that I didn't, you know, write books and publish and do all that stuff. But I just felt like I was kind of stuck against this plateau that I couldn't get mm-hmm. over. And the cost of living just kept increasing, increasing, increasing. And my income wasn't going up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just San Diego in general, because I've spoken to a lot of other people in the legal profession. And San Diego just doesn't pay legal professionals what a lot of other cities do. So I started to think about it. I'm like, yeah, I think we should make this change. It's going to be smart for both of us. And then he started looking for a job and got one and was like, okay, here's where we're going. And it was Illinois. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you should check with the recruiter that helped me and see if you can get a job at this same company. And it just happened. But um, I think getting an old historic home has always been a dream of mine. I grew up in a really, really old house. It was 100 years old in a kind of a little antique town in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. It's actually the antique capital of the country or something like that, Snohomish. Really? Shout out to Snohomish. Um, <laughs> there's like the whole like downtown part of the, the city is antique shops. So yeah. they have these great big, huge Victorian homes and people go tour them in the summer and they there's a like a drive where you can go through like a bunch of selected homes and check out the interiors and the original furniture and all the neat stuff that the houses have. And so that mm-hmm. was something I was always interested in, but California really doesn't have a lot of old homes like in that way. And no, it's, it's, they, they have like missions. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't have but like that, Victorian yeah. type homes, which was always yeah. something I was kind of interested in. And so when he mentioned here, I immediately started looking at stuff that was on the market and there's a lot of, um, well, not a lot of, but there were a few houses that were on the, um, God, sorry, I'm like blanking out. There were a couple like the of historic ha- registry. No, they weren't on the historic registry. They were part of the underground railroad. Oh, and I was just like, Oh my God. Immediately. I was like, I want one. I want yeah. something that was part of this. I want something that was part of the abolitionist movement. I want something where people that lived here made a difference in other people's lives. Yeah. Because to me, that, like, inspires so much creativity and meaning and, like, just it gives you a different feeling. Mm -hmm. So we started looking and found the house that we're in right now. And it took, God, I don't know, seven months for the whole thing to come together. It just, because of COVID and everything that's going on right now, paperwork, financing, all that just took, like, a million times longer (laughs) than it probably normally would. And then we had an agent from California that was helping us rather than an agent in Illinois, and that kind of really stopped the process a little bit. Because Kelly, my friend, the one that does mortgaging and real estate, was our agent. and she For this, the house that you're in now? Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. She's actually from this city, Rockford. No. She is. So it what? was kind of had a special meaning for her. She, um, yeah, that's where her family was from. So um, she had worked with us in California on three or four different purchases, and we just we like her. She's a volleyball friend of mine from San Diego that mm-hmm. you know has been my friend for since I practically moved to San Diego, and so. When she found out we were moving here, she was like, oh my gosh, that's where my family is. And my aunt still lives there and blah, blah, blah. So we worked with that's her crazy. to get this house. And it's hard to kind of do that because a lot of the local agents don't want to work with someone who isn't licensed in the state and they won't. They flat yeah. out will refuse to work with someone. They'll tell you to go get a local agent or they're not going to work with you. And we found the house first 
and then had a conversation with the broker who was representing the sellers and he said he was willing to work with Kelly who was our agent and so we mm-hmm. went forward at that point I don't necessarily know that I would recommend that it, it's much more challenging um, in that there's not a lot of there's a lot of pushback from the seller when somebody is not in the state yeah um, and not a licensed agent in the state. So I, I would not recommend that. But at the same time, with COVID going on, it would have happened anyway because people aren't sitting face to face. Things aren't right. The same. Everything's remotely anyway. Yeah. So yeah. it just kind of put some twists and turns and challenges in there. But um, I've posted a lot of pictures from the house and I don't want listeners to think that in any way I'm trying to brag. Um, because this is not a multi-million dollar home. It's nowhere near the cost that our California home was. It's got a, it needs a ton of work. And the stuff that I post is just little things that I appreciate about the house, like mm-hmm. little tiny clap, like metal clasps on the cupboards in the pantry that are not worth anything. They're, they're more right. sentimental to me than actually worth anything and to replace them you could spend like 50 cents to replace it so it's not as though i'm like oh look at all this expensive fancy stuff we have because it's not (laughs) but to me it's special because decades and decades of families lived here and their hands touched these things and Mm -hmm. wore down the surfaces and it's got history and it's got years of love and and families that grew up in this home and in particular the man that built this house was an abolitionist soldier for the Civil War who had the first black regiment in the U.S. trained them here on the shores of the river. Wow. Which is absolutely amazing. And he fought in the Civil War with this this area that I live in was actually a training spot as well before they built homes here. And then he fought in the Civil War, got done, came home, and decided that he wanted to build a home here. So he bought the same land where they did the training camps for the soldiers in the Civil War. And lived here with his wife. I think he became a judge or an attorney or something like that, but lived here with his wife for many years um, and ended up getting tuberculosis. And so he would travel back and forth to California, Southern California, in the the summer for the air, air, right? (laughs) And then he passed away, I believe, in the early 1900s. And then another family, another prominent family, I guess he was a judge, bought our home. And his wife was a sock heiress. She patented the heel, the technique for making the heel of socks. And they still use the technique now. Really? And she was an amazing person. She came from a very prominent local family. And she did most of, her family did many of the improvements to this home as far as building on mm-hmm. additions and putting in some of the fancier elements like the marble fireplaces and things like that because she came from money and had the, the dough mm-hmm. to, ca- to throw in some very, very nice features to this home and build on this addition. We have, because the, the, the original house was probably only a couple thousand square feet, which is still very big for that time period, but mm-hmm. they expanded it so that it was like five or 6,000 square feet. Instead, they built on the back area for the kitchen. They built on, there's like a, a sun porch and a pool room and some different things in the back of the house, which all sounds very posh, but if you look at it, it <laughs> it's not like, you know, one of the grand estates from Chicago or anything like that, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a little bit more simplistic, but it's beautifully done in that in that time period, there was a lot of craftsmanship and a lot of time that they took to carve wood pieces yeah. and to put little tiny metal pieces with decorative ornamentation on them and things like that. So none of it's like prefab, which is what you, basically what you left in, in Southern California. Yes. Everything I mean, about our house was... Yeah. 
Like there was no character per se. And it was a very right. Southern California kind of a adobe kind of a house with stucco on the outside mm -hmm. and you know cactuses in the yard and we had like a water a desert type landscaping sort of a scheme and everything on the inside was forced air heating and you know central air air conditioning mm -hmm. fancy windows like everything was designed for the maximum efficiency everything was electronically controlled we didn't have locks on any of the doors everything was electronically locked and you entered yeah. codes to do anything and you could control everything from your phone and moving here is like the exact opposite <laughs> yeah. it's like taking a step back in digital time. to analog yeah. yeah and the keys are like like two inches long yeah. <laughs> Like, your keychain is completely different. I have skeleton keys on my keychain now because so many of the doors are like old school. That's awesome though. So the challenge is to incorporate electronic conveniences mm -hmm. while um, making sure that you're not making it look modern. Right. So uh, we've incorporated, we got like a nest to control the temperature because it has mm -hmm. radiant heat, radiator heat which I've never experienced mm. before. And it's very, very efficient for those that don't really know what it is, is they have these great big, huge radiators that pump water throughout the house and the water heats up and just kind of heats the entire room through these radiators is mm -hmm. my understanding. Yeah. And there's this particular room that I'm sitting in right now has radiators along the whole back wall. So it's super, oh, super wow. warm in here and it very, very efficiently heats. I don't know as far as what the cost is concerned, if it's going to be super expensive or not. I haven't gotten right. the first electricity bill yet but fingers crossed it won't be that bad because <laughs> um, our other house that we were in just you turn the heat on and turn it up and up and up and up and it would just it never seemed to get warm in three quarters of the rooms and hmm. so here it is it's snowing outside it's freezing cold and you're just sitting there shaking and the heat's on and it looks like it's like 75 degrees but it's really not yeah so i didn't care for that it was like the forced air heating versus yeah. the radiant heat and the radiant heat is just it's wonderful. Like you go into the room and you're just like, ah, I don't have to be cold. And it heats up very quickly and it, it's much more efficient. But anyway, mm -hmm. enough house talk. <laughs> but see, I think because we've been talking about that and I've gotten a couple of requests through the, the show's Twitter um, account for like, if people are like, where is Sarah posting these, these um, house renovation pictures? So people are interested. And I think it's because... I think it's I don't think people think that you're bragging. I think it's because of home renovation stuff on a budget is like so popular. Yeah. Like that's what the entire HGTV channel is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's like I think it's just another like kind of thing like that. And it's like, oh cool, somebody listened to you on the podcast is doing this herself and yeah. it's like getting to see that on Instagram. So Well, we went and had so, yeah. some appraisals and stuff for companies to come out and help us with a lot of the renovations and they were just mm -hmm. like ridiculously expensive and we were just mm -hmm. like we're not spending 100 grand. Like come on. Good lord. Like I don't have 100 yeah. grand to spend. I don't know many other people have 100 grand to just throw yeah. into a house for expenses. And so we decided not to go that route. In addition, if you do go that route, you end up, I think, changing some of the historic, because a lot of these companies, they don't want to keep the historic features. They want to gut it mm -hmm. and start all over again and make it new. And granted, mm -hmm. they'll try to use historic features when they do, but they don't want to keep any historic features that you have. They want to gut everything and start from scratch and go find yeah. these pieces for you that are historic. And it just didn't make sense yeah. to me because so many of the pieces in this home, lighting fixtures and woodwork and things like that are not 
damaged. They're in incredibly yeah. good shape. So why would you want to tear it all out and throw it away? Right. Just to redo it in the same way. With, and to make it look <laughs> old It again. didn't make yeah. sense to me. So we ended yeah. up going with a, a different contractor who can kind of do some room by room, piece by piece work for us. Um, and one of the things that we're working on ourselves right now is tearing out the flooring in the laundry room, which is actually was a bathroom on the second floor of the house that they turned into a laundry room. There's a toilet and a sink in there. Oh, <laughs> which, well. And it's convenient if you have a lot of laundry right? to fold or something. <laughs> you got to go to the bathroom. You got to go to the bathroom. But yeah. it used to be a bathroom, and they turned it into the laundry room. There used to be a shower and a tub and, and things like that in there. And now it's just a tub and a toilet and the washer and dryer. So, mm-hmm. But the thing is, it had linoleum flooring in it, like really old linoleum flooring from, I think, the 50s. And the way they mm. did it back then was like pff, legit craziness. Like they tar papered the crap out of it. So... Pulling oh. it up has been a nightmare, and we've actually had yeah. to tear the subfloor up in the laundry room. And when we were doing that, we found a lot of like dry, a lot of it's dried out now, but like rot around the toilet and mm. the sink where water damaged the wood. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to pull kind of the wood out. And it's a good thing that he kind of tore it apart and saw that. But whoever did the work in the bathroom way back then just did a really sloppy job, and there was like just covered up. Yeah, basically, we yeah. tore the floor up, and there's all kinds of junk underneath the floor where they did the work before and just left it instead of cleaning it out. So Mike is just like, Oh my God, this is so gross. And so we went and just vacuumed everything out from underneath there and and cleaned it really, really good. And now we're just trying to pick out the flooring and it's a very, very small room. It's only like, I don't know, five feet wide and maybe eight feet long. It's not a big bathroom. It's not massive. It's it's just a small room, which is why we felt confident doing it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and the washer and dryer is set to be delivered like next week. So there's kind of this, a little bit of a rush to, yeah. <laughs> to get that room completed and finished. And hopefully it will look decent. We'll post some pictures. My Instagram is at Cooper's Human. And Cooper's with a Z. Yes. C-O-O-P-E-R-Z. H-U-M-A-N. Um, yeah. If you want to check that out, it's the account is open. It's my personal account. I know that a lot of podcasters do that as well, but there's a lot of pictures that I'm posting of my house and my dog and other animals. Mm-hmm. If you're into animals, <laughs> I don't mind. Um, go check that out. Um, I post a lot of stuff on there and videos as yeah. well because people have been asking me a lot about that lately. Can you please post videos? We want to see like in real time, like what things look like when you're doing certain things. So I've posted videos and there will be much more. My plan for the upcoming year is as we start to do these projects to kind of do before and afters and kind of go through some of the things that we're doing. And I realize this is not a home improvement podcast. <laughs> this is a true but that's why that's your life right now. That's what you're doing. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff. Um, the people that owned the house before us bought it in the '80s, and so they did a lot of changes in the '80s that are really like dated now. That look yeah. weird mixed in with the because there were changes done in the '20s and the early 1900s, the '50s, and then the '80s. And, mm-hmm. not, and early 90s so those yeah. all those looks together are really weird so anyway <laughs> yeah. my 20 minutes the, of- um this i think it was a sunrise picture you posted of looking out to the river the other day oh my god it was incredible was gorgeous like the room that we're in right now we we made it i think it was an old parlor back in the day because mm-hmm. it's got a nice little fireplace in there and it's a very large room for that time period because in the victorian mm-hmm. times the rooms were a lot smaller. 
families mm-hmm. didn't need big, huge rooms. They didn't need big bathrooms. They didn't need, and it's amazing that we even have bathrooms indoors in this house because a lot of families had outdoor outhouses, mm-hmm. but they had indoor plumbing and indoor bathrooms and things in this house, which is absolutely incredible. So they were very, um, I think, and I think it was that the heiress, she was like, yeah, I'm not going oh, yeah. outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so she put in these beautiful marble sinks. Mm-hmm. in the main bathrooms upstairs, which are just incredible. And I've posted some pictures of those on the Instagram account because I've never seen anything like it. They have ornate bowls on the bottom and they're just mm-hmm. very, very different. But anyway, I'm going to um, cut that part out for now <laughs> <laughs> and we'll jump into the main topic so that people are like, hey, we, we tuned in for some true crime. Um, right. <clears throat> anyway, the main topic for the day. I am going to talk about is some, one that's been pretty controversial, I think, in the last year or two. Um, and when it started to hit social media, there have been a couple different documentaries about this. I believe there was one that came out in like May of 2020 on Netflix mm-hmm. about this. Um, a lot of celebrities have jumped behind this person, and I just kind of was curious about the case and wanted to talk a little bit about it, and it is the case of Centoya Brown. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with her? I am. Yeah. I am familiar with her. Um, that documentary, I don't remember when it came out. If uh, May 2020 feels right, but it was like. I heard about it in May, so it may have been before that or after that. Yeah, but, but it just, it, it was one of those things where I was like, I can't, I can't. You know what I mean? Like I got to the limit where I was like, I can't, I can't watch the news. I can't yeah, like, yeah. Get, I, I, I needed like to full, fill my life with like mindless like comedy. So like I wasn't getting into anything that was like real. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like I didn't watch that documentary, but yeah, I'm familiar with I didn't watch the documentary because um I felt really strongly that they should have consulted her and she wasn't any part of the documentary. Oh see I didn't know that. Okay. They didn't talk to her. They didn't ask her questions. They didn't talk to her family. Like it was very, I think uh, created in a way that I didn't think was necessarily all that respectful towards her being the actual person maybe. that this is about. And they didn't talk to her at all. Didn't make sense to mm-hmm. me. So I didn't watch it. Um, but yeah. I have seen a lot of other stuff about this case and heard other podcasts about it. So I feel as though I've gotten a pretty uh, wide range of different opinions on this. And I'm going to kind of talk about some of that when I go through this. But Centoya was born in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, January 29th, 1988. So she's an 80s. I've been to Fort Campbell. Was her, was her 80s baby. family in the um, military? Um, I don't believe so. Oh, okay. Um, they moved to Tennessee not long after. Her mother, uh, Georgina Mitchell, um, according to reports, was not the best of mothers. She reportedly drank and did possibly did drugs during the pregnancy mm-hmm. and while young the baby was very very young um Centoya never knew her biological father and he is listed as unknown so I okay. don't necessarily believe the mother knew who he was either um I don't okay. think it was an intentional pregnancy um her birth mom was a teen at birth which is kind of sad uh, young girls having children is mm-hmm. a very very rough situation um, I think she drank very heavily at times. She was said to have drank a fifth of vodka per day, Ooh. which can be very, very damaging to a fetus. But yep. um, there are also sources. Oh, she did while she was pregnant? Yes, yes. Oh, wow. There are also sources that say Georgina did crack cocaine during her pregnancy. I- I'm not sure. I don't know that that's mm-hmm. necessarily verified, but she clearly was not doing the best things. It was not a very wholesome beginning. She was living on the streets. She had a rap sheet. Very rough life. 
Okay. Um, and this would just be extremely challenging for anyone trying to have a baby in that sort of a lifestyle anyway. Yeah. But Santoya spent time on the street with her mom as a very, very small baby after she was born. And luckily her mother did the right thing, realizing that she was not in a place to raise a young child. And I, I don't necessarily think she put Santoya up for adoption. She had this friend, Elinette, Brown and her husband mm-hmm. Thomas and she asked Elinette to watch the baby and then never came back. Oh, wow. So Elinette and her husband Thomas Brown um, adopted Centoya and they went through the process okay. and it took a couple of years. I don't believe she was fully adopted until the age of two but she lived with them from the age of eight months. It It's usually a, a long process. Like there's, um, I know for me, and I was born in 1984. I lived, I was born in June of 1984, and I was with my foster parents for a couple months. Um, my, my parents took me home in, like, October, but the paperwork wasn't done. Like, there was still a time when, like, my biological parents could have, like, reclaimed me. Yeah. So, like, it takes, like, six to eight months um, before everything to, like, go through well, and yeah. be like official official I was yeah. just going to say that they have to terminate parental rights for both parents if possible and since mm-hmm. the father was unknown they had to do their due diligence to try to find the father to terminate those rights and give it an appropriate amount of time to do that and then mm-hmm. if the mother was you know unavailable or living on the streets or not easily locatable it would be an even longer process because they do yeah. have to do their diligence to try to make sure that they're properly terminating those parental rights so that the parent cannot come back later and try to sue saying, you right. know, I'm right here. They never tried to contact me. Okay. So it just makes it a better situation for the child when it can all be done properly. And she was still living with them from a very young age anyway. So mm-hmm. she wasn't old enough to realize that they weren't, you know, her real legal parents anyway. So I think that it was a situation it, yeah, where she was being cared for. Yeah. life. She was yeah. being cared for and it was a good family life from her. By all accounts, her new foster family was wonderful, very loving. So the Brown home was a very loving and a much better place for Centoya to grow up. It was a good situation for her. It's my understanding of the Browns divorced though a little bit later and Elinette eventually remarried. And some reports say that Centoya had issues with her new stepfather, Frank, but on the whole, it was a good home to grow up in. Okay. So the Brown family also had two older children, both adults, and they were out of the house by the time Centoya came around. But by all accounts, she got along with them. And she was very, very close with her adoptive mother, Elinette. I guess the father, Thomas, was a truck driver and he was on the road a lot. So she mm-hmm. became just by natural course of, you know, just being with this person a lot, became very close with her mother. And Centoya reportedly did really, really well in elementary school. And she was placed in a gifted program to begin with, which is awesome. I guess she was mm-hmm. very intelligent, very sharp, had a very high IQ. Um, and that was established very quickly. Um, however, she reported being teased a lot for being biracial because I guess her mother was white and her father was black, which okay. I guess uh, I can't speak to because I'm not biracial, but um, I feel like kids at that age will tease for anything and they'll just latch on to whatever is the most convenient thing because I was teased horribly mm-hmm. and I'm like as white as white can be. But the funny part about it is I was teased because they told me I looked Asian and so people would call me Chinka and oh ask me if I was Chinese. And cause I, my eyes are Swedish um, and they come from my grandmother. Uh, but 
people would always ask me if I was, and they would chase me from the school bus and they would tell me I was ugly and they would just, it was relentless to the point where I would just come home crying like almost every day. So Um, I can understand that part of it. And they would try to beat me up and they would just do all sorts of mean things. And of course my brothers, I had a huge family and did a single one of my brothers and sisters stand up for me? No, they let me get the crap beat out of me. Um, Were uh, Santoya's mother and stepfather were they white black, black. Uh, interracial they were, both they were black. black okay yeah okay. and i believe that they were darker in color okay. as well which i guess from what i understand presented some additional problems because people did not know that she was adopted per se and so they'd be like why are your mommy and daddy so dark and you're so light mm-hmm. and what's wrong with you and you're very mm-hmm. unattractive and blah 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 which again i think kids will latch on to anything they can to tease at that age and she I, really took I a lot of it. I agree with that um but they're also in Tennessee in the late 80s yeah, and yeah. early 90s oh, and yeah. I mean I can speak to being biracial in Alabama in the late 80s early 90s and um were you teased I th- for that? I, I was not teased I, w- I was a little bit um cut for my hair texture but uh, my sister was teased a lot more than I was, and and we are not biologically related, and she presents as more um, African American features than I do, mm-hmm. um, and so she was teased a good bit. But I do think that kids will latch onto anything. But I think it's different in the South because from day one you are taught the racial history of the South. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember ever not knowing it. You know what I mean? Oh wow! And and being. And, and it just was impressed upon me, what, whether or not it was intentional or not, that it's always something to kind of have in the back of your head. Well, so I you think never know the best way to sort of from. describe that, and, and, and I'm speaking just from my historical studies into race, but one drop of black back then meant you were black. So Some people still think that. That was a very, very huge thing in the South mm-hmm. from my understanding of, of historical perspective. Now you lived it. So like you can mm-hmm. kind of understand it a little better. Like if you could pass for white, then it was a lot easier for you than probably if you were not as easily identified as white versus black. So yes, must've been, which was very, my very experience. But, but I also remember just being deeply afraid that people would find out, like I was not comfortable telling anybody that I was biracial. I, I told a very small handful of friends, that I was biracial, but I was not comfortable just telling people until I moved to California at 27. Yeah, that's um, really it was, it's scary. Not a thing, it's not a very easy thing to be comfortable with in the South. Yeah. So um, on the one hand, I do. I definitely do understand that. And I do think that it, when, you, when you're growing up, regardless of where you are, at, at, when you're growing up and you're that age, mm-hmm. anything that makes you different yeah. is terrifying. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the last thing you want is to be different. And so... That also is part of it, I think. Yeah, yeah. I can understand that completely. And I'm not sure when she found out she was adopted either. And that can also be a very emotional and trying thing for young kids as well. Because I remember in school, the kids that were adopted or didn't, you know, had recently found out they were adopted, they were treated differently. They were versus the kids that were with their biological parents. It was almost Hmm. as if they were there was less respect, less admiration, less, um, good treatment for the kids that were adopted where I, by the other kids. What was that? By the other kids. Mm -hmm. See, that's interesting. I was never treated differently for being adopted by kids. I was by adults. Interesting. Like Like poorly or better? Um, 
dif- just differently because I remember like I very distinctly remember I was in fourth grade so I'm nine years old and my teacher comes up to me and like brings another kid who I didn't know and they're like she's also adopted oh my so god maybe you can talk weird. about that and I'm like I'm nine <laughs> like I'm like I don't know what to talk how do I talk to another kid about being adopted at nine what are you talking about and I my parents have always been very open I, yeah. I don't remember learning I was adopted yeah. Like, I don't remember a time when my parents sat me down and told me I was adopted. Yeah. So I just remember, like, adults, I think, were – I don't think anybody, like, my peers, like, kids my age knew really what it meant, yeah. probably. But, like, adults were, like – I was just – it was, like, always, like, pointed out to me. And I'm so like, I don't know if it was necessarily deliberate meanness as much as just ignorance. Yeah. No, no, no. I don't think it was mean. <laughs> right? I think it was – that's why I say, like, it wasn't better or worse. It was just I was treated differently. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't – yeah, I don't want to be I different. I don't know different. So, like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, it was, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also, you know, divorced kids, kids from divorced mm-hmm. families. Like, I remember some of the things we got. If you were from a divorced family, if your parents didn't go to college, you got teased. Like, mm-hmm. and the thing is, a lot of us just would kept keep our mouths shut. <laughs> I don't right. want to get teased for any of this stuff, so I'm not going to tell anybody anything. Right. So, anyway, it's neither here nor there. But in any case, she was supposedly teased for this. Um and then she felt like she didn't really belong from a very young mm-hmm. age because of this. Um, but despite being in this loving home, she started getting in trouble at a very young age. She supposedly threw a rock at a neighbor and hit a, a child in the head, mm. um, which caused some damage. And she would repeatedly vandalize property, always insisting that she didn't really mean to harm anyone and felt guilt and remorse after, but couldn't really understand why she was acting out mm-hmm. in these ways. Um, so, Impulse control, yeah, is a thing for her, and I think for many young children, impulse control is a thing. They don't understand how to control things, with the emotions. They don't understand feelings. They don't understand how to act normal in many ways. And I think she was just the kind of kid that that was going on for. Mm-hmm. And she also started stealing and just doing a lot of like really stupid things. She's a mm-hmm. smart kid. She should have known better in a way but then again when you're dealing with some of these impulse control issues I think that it was a little bit more challenging for her to stop herself and I think she started hanging out with kids as well that were the bad kids mm-hmm. and we all know who the bad kids were the with the disruptive ones the antisocial the troublemakers the ones that were stealing and destroying things and being rude and disrespectful mm-hmm. to teachers but she started hanging out I think sort of by process of elimination with these kids because she felt like she didn't belong anywhere else. Right. And oftentimes the bad kids are the ones that will accept other people in the group that other groups won't necessarily accept. Right. But she got kicked out of the gifted kids program by the second grade because she was disruptive and disrespectful to the teacher. I've listened to a lot of podcasts about this and there've been a lot of very sympathetic leanings towards her for this, but I somehow struggle with this concept Um, because I feel like in the eighties and nineties, we kind of sucked at figuring things out on how to deal with kids with issues, um, with the emotional issues. It sounds like she just didn't have the resources available to, 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 um, really process these behavioral things that she's got going on. Yeah. And I struggle with it because I came from a crappy life, a crappy beginning, poor, abused. Like we had physical abuse. There was sexual abuse going on in our family, um, there were times where we struggled financially, where, you know, hand-me-down clothing, food stamps, things like that. But mm-hmm. I never went and destroyed property and stole things and did 
naughty things like that. So Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to understand why she felt like those things needed to happen for her. And that's always been something that I've struggled with when I'm talking about people that are committing crimes. You have choices. You don't have to Mm -hmm. choose the choice where you're breaking the law. And I don't care what kind of a background you come from, you have a choice whether to commit that yeah. crime or not. So that's, and, and, and I'm I telling that you, that's, that's something that I struggle with in, in coming up yeah. with understanding why they would make that choice rather than to choose to do the right things. Yeah, and, and I, I do struggle with that too because by, I mean, I have people in my family that deal with impulse control and always are remorseful later but still continue to to yes. engage in the behavior and it's always a really big struggle stories. for me <laughs> um yeah so I do struggle with that I'm kind of learning which 30 you know you could make the argument 36 is a little late to be learning this but I'm kind of learning Better that it's never. just literally <laughs> it's literally just like an inability of your brain to think through the consequences of your actions to the consequences yeah, yeah. it's interesting and then, and it's so hard for me to understand that, but yeah, I'm kind of trying yeah. to like grasp that. And the now thing is, how and, and deal with it? How do you deal with that? How do you help kids like that? How do you help adults like that? And these are things that, as a society, I think we're we're learning that we've like with a, basically with a slap in the face that we have to learn yeah. how to deal with these. And how? I really don't know. But I think, you know, a lot of counseling, a lot of, you know, assistance with special kinds of programs to help people understand this is what you're dealing with. This is how your brain is wired. This is, these are Mm -hmm. some tools and techniques you can use to combat this. But of course we didn't have this in the eighties and nineties, like no way. It wasn't even like an idea on the horizon back then. And so essentially when you had the kids like Centoya who were dealing with these impulse control problems and creating trouble, just kick them out. Suspend them, yeah. expel them, get rid of them. Be, yeah. If we don't have to see them, then they don't exist kind of a situation. And that's been the way mm-hmm. our country has been with mental health, with a lot of other, with racial issues, with anything. If we get mm-hmm. rid of them, put them away in this cell, in this jail cell, or get the, put them in a mental institution, then we don't have to think about them. Mm-hmm. And that's how we deal with it, which is very, very sad. But in any case, um, when she got kicked out of this program, of course, her her parents were very upset and this caused Santoya to react even more adversely. She started stealing and doing even more bad things. Um, she was caught at one point bringing no-dos to school. Do you remember no-dos? I do remember no-dos. <laughs> I never took no-dos. I was terrified that they were going to kill me for some I reason. I took it once because I heard somebody took it like for a final. I've never in my life been somebody that could stay up all night studying. I yeah. just can't cram. I've always had to study like days in advance, but, um, during finals, like I know people that took adrenaline and I knew, uh, or, uh, uh what's it, Ritalin. And, um, and I, like, I was like, you know, somebody told me they took no dose. And so I tried it one time and I felt nothing. Basically it's just caffeine, isn't it? It's just caffeine. Yeah. yeah. And the thing, and you had to be really careful when you take pure caffeine. Like it can be really I dangerous. just don't understand why they're considered contraband in schools. Like it's caffeine. Like, uh, anyway, that's just me. Yeah. I, um, I didn't even do caffeine until just recently. Like I tried coffee, I tried sodas and things and I didn't like any of it. And I just was like, no. Yeah. Um, but now I'm addicted to, <laughs> I have to have caffeine uh, yeah. or else I can't survive. But anyway, she took these notos to school and she got expelled for that. And because of her issues and inability to fit in, her family enrolled her in an alternative school feeling like Mm -hmm. this would be a better fit. And again, that was one of those things that I think happened in the 80s and 70s and 90s a lot. 
Um, oh, it still happens, I mean, around here. Yeah, and I don't, I think a lot of alternative schools are becoming better at learning how to service kids that need sort of a, a different way to do things, but back then, mm-hmm. I think it was just like this bottomless pit where they would throw the bad oh, kids. Oh, it was a stigma. It was a stigma. Yeah, they'd throw the bad kids, yeah. and then the bad kids would end up dropping out and either going to jail or, you know, becoming criminals or whatever. So I think that because Centoya was so intelligent, I think she possibly needed a little bit of extra stimulation, a little bit of extra to keep her challenged and motivated. And I just don't think this was the right thing for her. She probably needed an individualized education program. And it it doesn't sound like she had the school board or you know the, the school program that she was in it doesn't sound like they had those resources i heard somewhere that she had an iq of 134 whoa yeah so whoa she's a smart by the rookie. way the average iq is 100 and there's a standard deviation of about 15 so she's over two standard deviations above the average yeah so she's a smart cookie wow. um which to me speaks even more to if they're just coming at her with some stupid average school program which were in the schools back then she is not going to be challenged she's not going to mm-hmm. feel like she you know matters essentially yeah. um she's going to feel like they're dumbing everything down for her if she's that smart and so i can understand the frustration now does she need to act out by stealing and vandalizing and that no but i think if you're dealing with frustration and you don't know how to control your impulses and things like that then it just puts you in a very dangerous sort of a situation and that was where she was right um and being in this alternative school only made things worse for her because now she was introduced to some kids that were far worse than the ones she was associating before um they Mm -hmm. were doing very hard drugs and um, committing crimes and just being a very very bad influence for centoya she was hanging out with much older kids and they were getting her into even worse trouble than just a few shoplifting things at the little corner market or whatever Mm-hmm. Um, and that's often the case at alternative schools. I mean, at least the ones in my area that I grew up familiar with because I knew kids that went there or you heard about kids that went there yeah. is they're, they're, you're not structured in like by age group anymore. You're no longer stratified, stratified, stratified by age. They just p- throw all the kids together. Yeah. So, and so you have like 17 year olds hanging like around 12 year olds. Yeah. And it's just like, and that's the thing. I think yeah. she was like 12 or 13. Like, yeah, what the heck? Like, she doesn't know what to think, and she's just in survival mode probably at that point. Um, She got arrested for assault. Mm. Um, She got into a fight with one of her friend's mothers, and it escalated really fast, and she was sent to juvenile hall or juvenile detention. or It's Mm -hmm. called different things in different states, I believe, but she was sent into juvenile detention or juvenile keeping. And she was ordered by the court to get a psych eval, Mm-hmm. which is interesting. And I think this is when they... That's probably the first one she ever had. Yeah, and I think that this is when they started to determine how truly intelligent she was. Yeah. Um, she went to a mental health facility for this, and again, more bad kids in this facility. They were influencing her and kind of teaching her behaviors that she probably mm-hmm. would not have gotten without their influence. Mm-hmm. And a lot of different people that have reported on this have said that these facilities are basically breeding grounds for criminal behavior yeah there's not there's not a lot of supervision and again it's it's the it's the throwaway mentality the the throwaway kids to a lot of people and and it's really unfortunate my comment was what is the alternative like how do we deal with this how do we get to a place where we can create 
a productive life where we can mold these children and learn how to teach them properly so that we're taking mm -hmm. advantage of their skills and their the good parts of them rather than the bad parts because it seems like they mm -hmm. just get called out for the bad parts and then they never get anything else after that well it doesn't ever I think we're and I think I do think we are getting better and I maybe I'm biased because I come from parents that both work in this area mm -hmm. but I think that we are getting better at recognizing that the behavioral output is a result of an internal difficulty usually something from a home life yeah you know what yeah. I mean I think we're better at recognizing that and, and starting to address that. But the thing I is, by all accounts, she came from this amazing family. Like, why is she acting but out? But she's got things. She's she's dealing with things internally that are not seen in her by other people in her home environment. And I can relate to that. And when you say that, you're talking about, like, the biracial issues and the, yeah. the adoption issues and things like yeah. that. Okay. Got it. Um, and again, I, I say that I don't understand these things because I want to try to understand why she's doing some of the things she does when she has the choice to make other decisions on this. I, in no way do mm -hmm. I want the listeners to think that I'm judging her or, or like trying to make it sound like she's a bad person because I really don't believe that anyone is born a bad person. I think that it's a consequence of the environment that we grow up in and the influences that touch our lives. And it's rough for some people. I mean, I, I take that back. I think that there are a limited number of individuals that are just kind of born and they're going to be bad whether they grow up in a loving, caring environment or not, uh, like some sort of serial killers. But mm -hmm. by no means do I think Centoya was one of these individuals that was born a bad seed. She was a good kid by all accounts. She was smart. She had the ability to do great things and she just got stuck in, in a really bad environment that did not nurture the good parts of her and only nurtured the bad parts of her. Well, and I, and I say that because I can, if you were to look at my home life where I grew up, I grew up in an affluent area. My, both my parents were together until I was about 24. Um, so it would have looked very stable. Yeah. But internally for me and my sister, we both struggled with a lot of things that you just couldn't see. And we didn't feel like we had an outlet and we didn't feel like we could talk to anybody about it. Yeah. I didn't get along with my sister. It's not like I would talk to her yeah. about it. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So it's an internal struggle that manifests outwardly in a lot of occasions. And I think it's difficult for somebody that to look in from the outside it, to be like, well, she had everything going for her. Why does she make these decisions? Yeah. And it's an internal thing that like, it's, I don't know. I don't know of a better way to describe it. It's, it's your internal and your external world are not matching. And especially when you're like a teenager, yeah. that's really difficult to reconcile. And it's interesting when you say didn't have anybody to talk to. Counseling back then was an effing joke. Mm -hmm. It was a joke. Counselors were mm -hmm. terrible. I don't think they understood how to help the kids. I went to a counselor multiple times as a young child growing up because I came from a family environment where there was physical, mental, and sexual abuse. And mm -hmm. at one point, the authorities were called, well, at multiple points, the authorities were called in. And we were forced to go to counseling as a part of mm -hmm. that through school um, in order to stay in our home. And the counselor was just, not only did they make you feel like you were some kind of weird little creature that was not normal, and but they would make you feel guilty and like you were different and bad different. Mm -hmm. It wasn't good. I remember all the, like, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't a pleasant, it wasn't something that I looked forward to or wanted to be a part of. It was like I had to and I was being set apart from everybody else because I went mm -hmm. to these and it was just a very negative experience. And I didn't want to tell and, them anything. 
Yeah. And with, I mean, with therapy in general, you have to do a lot of therapist shopping and that's not an option when you have to go to the school counselor. Yeah. So, Mm. and I think at one point they brought in a child services person who was supposed to kind of analyze us and see, you know, if we needed to be removed from the home. And basically they had us play with clay and Mm -hmm. asked us, Hey, what do you do every day? And I made a snake or something. And he immediately was like, it was a man. And he immediately was like, what's the snake represent? Is that your dad? Is that your mom? Like, da, 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 and just like, and you're like, I don't know. It's a snake, man. Words into <laughs> yeah. my mouth rather yeah. than letting me tell him mm-hmm. what was going on. And I think that's a lot of times they, they, they wanted to find things and they were going to try to mold you into a circumstance or a situation where you were telling them what they wanted to hear. That happened very frequently in the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, that's the whole McMartin preschool thing. Yep. Exactly. So I think even at a young age, I was aware that something about it wasn't right. And so I would just Mm -hmm. do random weird, like make bizarre things that I didn't have, didn't had no meaning to me. And I would just mess Mm -hmm. with them. (laughs) I I, I always shut down. No, I would, I would deliberately mess with them. They'd be like, is that your mom? And I'd be like, no, that's my teacher. (laughs) Just do just, I was a really naughty child. And I spent a lot of time. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the principal's office. I didn't do anything illegal. I didn't vandalize. I didn't steal. I didn't do a bunch of that other stuff. But I was disruptive. Yeah. Um, I would tell the other kids to do bad things. Like at one point, I told the other kids in my class that we all needed to go stand out by our lockers and not. We had a substitute that day that we all needed to go stand out by our lockers and not go in until like a certain bell rang or something like that. And so the teacher came out and was like, everybody go into the classroom now. Why are we all standing in the hallway? And we all just stood there. And of course, oh my God. <laughs> she, somebody squealed and said that it was me or whatever. And so I had to go to the principal office. And then one time I told us that everyone had to drop their books off their desk at every 15 minutes past the hour or something like that. And so every, <laughs> we just, Suddenly, drama. You were that kid. <laughs> I was a bad kid. I was the opposite of that kid. I never got in trouble. I was afraid to get in trouble. I was an instigator. But again, <laughs> I was smart and mm-hmm. I knew things and I wasn't being challenged in school. And so for me, I acted out by doing things creatively that I thought would get attention or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, once Centoya finished her time in juvenile detention, Her parents tried to get her back in school. By then, she was in middle school, I believe. And she had trouble fitting back in, which is not, I think, Mm -hmm. surprising at this point. She's been in juvenile detention. She's been drawn apart. Especially because everybody knows where she was and why she wasn't in school. And she's probably behind in her studies because she's Mm -hmm. been in that space. But she just had a hard time mixing with the normal kids uh, because... She'd just been in juvenile detention. And so here she is with the bad kids that they put her in with again. And they actually put her into a class with mental and developmental disabled children, Mm -hmm. which I think is one of the worst things you can do for somebody with her intelligence because she is immediately going to start acting out. There's going to be nothing for her in that class that's going to stimulate her, challenge her in any way. Well, I think the idea was probably so that she could get more focused attention from the teachers, so if she could get more one-on-one time, and she could work on an individualized educational program. I don't know if that's what happened. Yeah. I would think that that was, like, the idea behind that's, that. That's, yeah. But I don't think that's what happened, because I remember yeah. in that being back in a school, but, excuse me, being back in school, and all of us were in the same class, and there were definitely children in there that had... Um, I wouldn't say mental health issues as much as they just had learning disabilities. And the teacher spent mm-hmm. the entire time on that child and all the rest mm-hmm. of the kids, because the squeaky wheel gets the grease. All the rest of mm-hmm. the kids were not being supervised, were not being challenged, were not being monitored. 
and they right. spent there just wasn't enough manpower for the teachers yeah. to get through the, the the ones that were struggling the most and everybody else right. so she's 13 at this point like I, I think she's probably completely lost at that point mm -hmm. doesn't know what to do where to go who to count on who to talk to and she ends up back in juvie and she's again around a lot of older kids with mental issues that are influencing her. She tries to run away. She gets caught. She gets sent back. She's finally released again at the age of 15 and sent back to her family. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine by then, she's probably a very, very troubled young lady. And when she returns, her mother had gotten divorced and brought her new boyfriend in, Frank. Okay which again is going to be a very probably traumatic thing for this teenage young woman. Mm -hmm. um, I went through a similar situation myself. My mom was divorced many, many times and every single time she brought a new guy home, it was a very kind of traumatic experience for all of us. And then when you factor in, you know, maybe this person is controlling, maybe this person is, you know, yelling at you. Maybe this, there's some physical mm -hmm. abuse. I don't know. There's no indication that this stepfather physically, mentally abused her in any way. I just want to make that clear. Okay. But this was sort of a traumatic experience, and evidently she did not get along with him. He probably wanted her to behave and act like a normal young lady, mm -hmm. and she did not know how to do that at that point, given where mm -hmm. she came from. And I just don't think they probably knew how to deal with her. And there's nowhere in that time period where they helped parents understand how to deal with these issues. So yeah. the parents are probably like out of their at their wits' end because they don't know what to do. Yeah. And so, so she's forced to go back to school and very very quickly bails on that again and starts hanging out with older kids from juvie and some other bad kids she's pretending to go to school and she's in the meantime hanging out with friends getting high partying drinking mm -hmm. etc um, her mom eventually finds out that she's not in school and that she's skipping school and she confronts Santoya and she runs away from home hmm. which Again, I think this is a mm -hmm. story that happened in many, many, many households with many troubled young teens. And she's 15 years old at that point, living on the streets in Nashville. She's smoking marijuana. She's hanging out with 20-year-olds. She's stealing for money. Um, I don't think she's progressed to the point where she's doing any serious, more serious crimes, but she's definitely heading down a very, very dangerous path. Mm -hmm. Eventually, she starts selling crack, she periodically returns home between these interludes and she tries to clean up her act and then she runs away again when she doesn't know how to cope or can't handle it. Mm -hmm. um, definitely looks like she was struggling at this point in her life to do the right thing, to be good, but she didn't know how to deal with the internal demons and no one was mm -hmm. there to help her. And I think this is not unusual for that time period. Yeah. During this time on the streets, Santoya says she was brutally raped multiple times, which just sounds horrific. And she came to be associated with a man by the name of Cutthroat, which, of mm. course, that's not his real name. I believe his real name was Garyon McLaughlin. And I can understand wanting to find somebody who's strong, who can protect you if you're in that sort of a situation where she's in danger, she's at risk, she's being abused horribly, and she wants to find somebody who can help her. And this, mm -hmm. I think, is what this cutthroat guy did initially. And he sort of gained her trust, and she fell for him really fast. And this is her protector. And he's in his mid-20s, and she's like 15. Mm -hmm. She moves in with him, which isn't really moving in with, they lived in hotels. So right. she attaches her wagon to this guy. 
Right. Okay. And they're, this is where things get a little dicey. Um, he gains the trust, this cutthroat guy of 15 year old Centoya and treats her good for a few months. And then once he has her locked in and emotionally invested, he starts treating her like crap. He starts forcing her into sex. He starts talking to her in a really derogatory, negative, nasty manner and starts initiating what he calls his lessons to teach her how to be quote unquote, a good slut. So he's groomed her and now he's abusing her. Yes. Begins abusing her physically and sexually. And she's trapped by that point. Mm -hmm. She doesn't even try to leave. She has no idea where to go. She is this young, vulnerable, incredibly damaged young girl who has no well, idea and he's what to probably do. also told her yeah there's nobody nobody will take you absolutely. in nobody wants you yeah and he's that's whole part of the grooming oh yeah he's degrading her and humiliating her and she doesn't know any better and she thinks that he loves her which i think is a normal reaction she doesn't i think a lot of times young girls in that situation will seek out this male figure to quote unquote love them because it makes them feel secure and it makes them feel safe and that's what mm -hmm. he initially did for her and then when all this other bad crap started happening she didn't know how to react but he loves yeah. me yeah. these things are okay because he loves me so she said she was searching for something during this time that she didn't get at home and this a little bit was conflicting to me because if her family was loving and caring, then why is she out searching for this? But then I had to kind of think back in my own mind as well. And that I think many young women will do this when they grow up in a situation where their father is either unknown or absent from the family, that they will seek that male attention in a negative mm -hmm. sort of a way. And even if she wasn't this loving family, it sounds like her first father in that adoptive family was on the road trucking. And so he was gone a lot anyway. So she never, mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like she really had that strong male figure giving her acceptable love in her life at any point. Yeah. And so I, I think. I was going to say, she doesn't have an example of what unconditional love is. Yes. So I think she really like went out and sought it out and just didn't know what she was looking for to even pattern it. And so mm -hmm. she thought this was what it was and it really wasn't, which is really, I think, common occurrence in a lot of young women which is just mm -hmm. it's scary it is really scary yeah. so um he tells her that she needs to um earn her keep at that point mm -hmm. right after they move into this hotel together and at this point she claims she was forced to start working as a sex worker and she says that she pretended at first so she would you know get these guys and take the money and then take off mm -hmm. so she wasn't doing the sex work per se, but she was still able to get him the money pretending. Right. And then eventually she accepted it and started doing the actual sex work. And this cutthroat guy was taking all the money. And I think mm -hmm. she became hopeless at that point. And I think it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where somebody tells you that this is what you are, you're going to do it and be at If that's the only thing that you're hearing, mm -hmm. you're going to do that. And be that. And, well, he's taking every cent that she's earning, so she does, she's completely dependent on him. Yes. And that's by design. Yes, I absolutely. Mean. Um, August 8th, 2004. Centoya and Cutthroat get into a massive argument. He says that she isn't bringing enough... He says that she isn't bringing enough money in, and he beats her and chokes her because of it and almost kills her at that point. Um, Centoya then goes out to find a customer 
and because she, you know, obviously he's telling her she needs to get to work and that she's not doing her part. And so she's trying to please him. And she goes to a Sonic mm-hmm. in Nashville. This is when a 43-year-old man by the name of Johnny Michael Allen stops to chat with this pretty young girl, right? And this is an interesting kind of a backstory, but Johnny was a real estate agent and he was a youth pastor in the area taught Sunday school and he was an army vet. So he sounded like Mm -hmm. on paper, he's an all around decent guy, but then why is he out seeking Mm -hmm. or youth sex workers? If he's such a stand up guy. So I think there's some kind of thought and some kind of different argument on this. Was he trying to help her? Um, Was there a part of him that was like, Hey, I see this girl in a very troubled situation and I want to help her. But in any case, he ends up taking her home. Okay. He bought her some food, had some nice conversation with her, kind of gained her trust and then brings her home to his house and starts showing her around and shows her his gun collection. She said, which seems very odd. Like if you're bringing a young sex worker home, why would you show them your gun collection? That doesn't, Honestly, in the South, that doesn't surprise me. (laughs) People are very proud of their guns. But anyway, he showed her his gun collection, and then he's like, let's get down to business. And again, this man is deceased now, so we're hearing her side of the story. We're not hearing any Mm -hmm. of his side of the story. I want to make it clear. And granted, he he brought a sex worker home, so he's not the best guy. But at the same time, it's her side of the story that we're hearing, and hers only. Mm -hmm. So... They agreed on a price of $150 and he's got her back at his house and she says she starts to feel very uncomfortable. He's acting a little strange and she asks to watch TV and chill out for a bit before they do the actual act. And then she takes a shower and he's in bed waiting for her when she gets out of the shower. Again, she's very, very uncomfortable. She pretends to go to sleep and take a nap to avoid having sex and says that he grabbed her very roughly between the legs. He was very aggressive. She says that he turned to reach for something and she felt scared. And so she reached into her own purse and pulled out a gun that she had and shot him in the back of the head. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I believe this story. The fact that she shot him in the back of the head is where it starts to kind of get, where I start to question it. Yes. Exactly. And I believe she shot him multiple times. Yeah. Um, Evidently, her pimp, cutthroat that is, gave her this gun and she carried it for her protection. Okay. Mm -hmm. After shooting Johnny Allen, Centoya steals $172 from his wallet, takes two guns, and then takes off in his truck. She goes back to the hotel where cutthroat is and claims that you know, she told him about the murder and that he was super pissed and makes her go dump the truck at a local Walmart ugh, and makes her go dump the truck at a local Walmart so it wouldn't be traced back to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. She claims at that point she didn't even know he was dead. She just said she shot him and ran. So she had no idea what mm-hmm. happened. Doesn't know. She was afraid he was still alive and he would seek revenge on her. So she had to get out of there fast. She says she did not find out that he died until she saw it on the news. She claims that Cutthroat actually respected and loved her more after he knew about her killing Alan. Which, Hmm. maybe he was scared of her. (laughs) She killed the dude. 
Yeah. This in itself is more reason why I don't believe she killed him in self-defense. I, I, I tend to think that this was a little bit more premeditated than she would have led people to believe. But um, the plan was to move hotels the following day. Um, the police barge in, though, before that can happen and grab both of them. Centoya immediately says, let Cutthroat go. He didn't do anything. She's trying to protect him. Her only concern is to prevent mm-hmm. him from getting arrested and to protect him, which is scary. Um, initially, she claims she's 19, but she was only 16 at the time. And they don't call her parents because she's telling them she's 19. Um, they later mm-hmm. discovered she was a minor. And they're interrogating her in the meantime, though, and she waived her Miranda rights. Um, she claims that she was very tired. It was about 3 a.m. and she was under the influence of drugs and didn't really understand what was going on at that time. When she waived her yes. Miranda rights? Now, sure. I have a question. Given that she is, they think she's 19, so I understand why they let her waive her Miranda mm-hmm. rights. But given that she's actually 16, can she legally waive her own rights as a minor? I don't believe that you can. I think you have to have okay. an attorney or a parent present when you've got a minor like yeah. that. Yeah, okay. Um, but in any case... Um, they promised her leniency if she confessed, which I don't think is unusual either. I think the police will promise anything in there to get anyone to say anything so they can close a case. And I don't think that's unusual at all. Um, they essentially tell her she's going to go to jail for life unless she tells them what they want to hear. And she doesn't, of course she doesn't want to go to jail for life. So then the authorities grapple with the question of whether to keep her in juvenile court or push her through to adult court. I believe the mandatory sentence at that point in time in Tennessee for murder was life in adult Mm -hmm. court, a mandatory life sentence for murder. Um, They have to have a transfer hearing, though, before they can decide what to do with her because they find out that she's only 16. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe that the issue of her waiving her Miranda rights and that sort of a thing was as much of an issue because... When she was in jail, she had telephone conversations with her mother. Her mother came to visit her, her biological mother, I believe, and I think her adoptive mother as well. But, and I'm not sure which mother it was, whether it was the adoptive or the biological, but they record all phone conversations in jail. And she essentially confessed in this phone conversation, I killed him, I Mm -hmm. executed him, in those words. Mm. So... Mm -hmm. I think that her confession via waiving her Miranda rights as a minor didn't end up being as much of an issue because of those phone calls and the other evidence that was right. along with it. Does that make right. sense? Yes. I think had it only been that, then it would have been more grounds for appeal or maybe vacating the sentence, that sort of a thing, but or, mm-hmm. or the verdict. Um, but it wasn't in this case because there were so many other bits of evidence and pieces of evidence in this case besides that. Um, so they have this transfer hearing to determine if she's going to be sent to adult court. She meets with her birth mom, presumably to use the alcohol and drugs during pregnancy as a defense or sort of a mitigating factor. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to keep her in juvenile court, um, obviously, her attorneys. Right. But her background is bad. It's not looking good for her. And the, and the specific I facts think... of this case and how it played out don't look good for her. And I think that... And this, correct me if I'm wrong, either you, Sarah, or listeners, but I think regardless of whether or not she's tried, like, even if she is tried in adult court, because she's a minor, she still cannot be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Correct. Okay. Yes. Um, So in order for her to be kept in the juvenile court, there's a couple factors that need to be, they need to happen. They need to show that she has issues that can be taken care of in juvenile 
court or juvenile facility Mm -hmm. and they need to show she can be rehabilitated and they need to show that she can be a productive member of society that Mm -hmm. the issues that she has can be handled in juvenile court and the problem is she's already been in juvenile court and juvenile detention multiple times so Mm -hmm. it's clear to them looking at her history that they cannot handle her issues her issues they cannot rehabilitate her in a juvenile court so they push her up to the adult court um, prosecution was focused on the shot to the back of the head. And they show that the evidence of where his hands were and things like that show that he was sleeping when she shot him. And this becomes the mm-hmm. prevailing theory of the case. And I think this is even more reason why they want to try her as an adult. The severity of this, her shooting him when he's sleeping, um, mm-hmm. just doesn't look good. And excuse me, some of the other podcasts get caught up on the 43-year-old man picking up a teen for sex. And they're like, oh, he picked up a sex worker. Bad, bad, bad. And a little bit of like mm-hmm. kind of victim shaming, victim blaming. Yes, picking up sex workers is not good. And he should not have been seeking out a minor for sex work. But I don't think in any way that that justifies murder in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not saying that they're saying that it did. But I think they get caught up and they push that fact and it ends up controlling the narrative of the case. And the thing is, she mm-hmm. killed a man. Okay. Well, I think that that's probably where the other podcasts are taking a different view. Yes. Is that they don't think that it was murder. Exactly. It's like they're they're taking that away. And the thing is, yeah. she did murder someone. And it wasn't self-defense because he was sleeping and she shot him in the back of the head. So I think that the court case and the the verdict of this court case determined that. Now, they want to say that being a victim of sex trafficking somehow justifies murder. Some of these. And that's the kind of the leaning that I was getting from it. And Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think the full truth of this is being addressed in a lot of these cases. Yes, she was a victim. But it does not justify murder, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, again, that's my opinion. And I think the court kind of followed that as well. Despite the efforts otherwise, Centoya was transferred to adult court. And I believe this was the correct thing to do. Now, the sentencing is, I think, where we all vary here. Yes, mm-hmm. she needs to be punished for committing this act. But what is the appropriate punishment for someone in her situation who was a sex-trafficked young lady? But they didn't have that term back then. And according to what I've seen, Tennessee was the toughest state as far as sentencing guidelines for teens who are tried as an adult for a felony crime, such as Centoya. And again, they cannot give them an undefined sentence without the possibility of parole. Right. And that would be grounds for appeal. They didn't do that. They gave her 51 years to life Mm -hmm. with the possibility of parole after 51 years. Okay, right. so it's a defined sentence. She has the possibility of parole. It's within the guidelines, okay? Yeah. I guess the maximum sentence for juveniles was eight years at that time. Mm-hmm. So if she had been okay. down in the lower court, as tried as a juvenile, mm-hmm. she would have gotten a max sentence of eight years. But this doesn't seem like it's enough for this sort of a crime to me, for shooting a man in the back of his head while he's sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. She was kept in isolation until after the age of 18 because of being a minor. Um, And she found out later that her former pimp slash boyfriend died a few years later in a drug related, a drug deal kind of gone bad. And so he couldn't really validate her story, which seems pretty convenient. I mean, it's kind of her word against everybody else's because everybody around her is no longer here anymore. Mm -hmm. But um, in August, 2006, the criminal trial begins for this young lady. 
most of the footage of this is actually available online. So if you're interested in checking that out, you can certainly do that. Um, it's really interesting to hear the different leanings from the different people who are testifying on her behalf, etc. Um, there's a lot of people who are extremely sympathetic to this young woman, and I get it. Um, some are the exact opposite, though, and think that she should have been punished to the full extent of the law. Um, during the trial, it was established that the victim was sleeping, that this was not self-defense, and her mom takes a stand to advocate for her daughter. Um, but again, I, the court takes that recording where she says, Mom, I killed him, I executed mm -hmm. him, and they basically use this as a confession. Mm -hmm. And they believe she killed him so she could rob him, and that her boyfriend pressured her and she never wanted to have sex, et cetera. So it was all kind of a planned thing that she was going to trick him, rob him and then leave. Um, but the entire defense centered on medical experts talking about all of Centoya's mental health issues. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the problems with fetal alcohol issues as well. And Centoya does not take the stand on her own behalf, which I guess is extremely intelligent and it's it's not recommended in those sorts of situations anyway mm -hmm. the trial lasts five days the jury deliberates six hours there weren't very many witnesses and she's found guilty of first degree murder first degree felony murder and aggravated robbery at the same time mm. and again as i mentioned earlier tennessee has one of the harshest sentencing guidelines for juveniles who are tried as adults and she gets that 51 years to life sentence so she's going to be about 70 before she's eligible for parole, according to mm -hmm. her sentence. And she was then transferred to the Tennessee Prison for Women, then Memphis, and then back to Nashville. This must have been a very, very, very challenging time for her. She was drifting in and out of trouble. And eventually her attorney kind of sits her down and tells her, hey, you got to get your act together. You are never going to have a chance to get out of here unless you get your act together. And mm -hmm. I can understand that. You're in jail for 51 years before you're eligible yeah. for parole. It's going to be a hopeless situation. At that point, though, she listened to her attorney and started taking classes and she started volunteering. I guess she earned her GED. She enrolled in college, got two bachelor's degrees. She enrolled in a culinary arts program. She mentored at-risk youth, which I'm kind of like, how is that a thing? <laughs> But anyway, she was in a puppy training program, which sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. um, she did have some issues in prison. It was not all good. There was some trouble that she had, but she really tried hard kind of to get her act together. She lost her first appeal. Um, and the first one is always for errors at trial. They try to vacate mm -hmm. the sentence for errors at trial. They lost that one. The second appeal was more focused on her cognitive impairment and the new evidence related to that impairment, i.e. the mom drinking while she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, but her IQ was 134. So this becomes mm -hmm. an issue. Like, how do you show fetal alcohol issues when your IQ is so high? Like, how do you help the court to understand that you have right. poor impulse control, but you're incredibly intelligent and gain sympathy for that? So that was a very, very challenging thing for her. Um, November 13, 2012, she's asking for a new trial due to the alcohol damage. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, they try to add that argument too that had come in that she had a sentence that was not defined before she was eligible for parole and that was against the rules etc but then they said no she got a 51 year sentence that's yeah. a defined sentence she's eligible for parole it doesn't apply the rule about not being eligible for parole does not apply here yeah but by about 2011 she was getting a lot of media attention and there was a couple documentaries i believe that started coming out on this youtube 
She starts getting letters, um, including one from her future husband. This kind of seems a little bit creepy that he's writing to her in prison like, hey, baby, hey, hot stuff. It's one of those things like people writing to murderers in prison. Yeah. um, She starts to gain a little bit of hope, though. Uh, There is one thing that can happen is the governor can grant clemency. Mm -hmm. And so her legal team really decides that that needs to be where they should go with this. Essentially, what's going to happen is they're going to ask for the governor to commute her sentence to second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder, and that would make her eligible for parole with time already served. Mm -hmm. That's their main hope. Um, She still would be a convicted murderer, but she would be free. The problem is less than 1% of clemency petitions are granted in Tennessee in the previous 10 years prior to her asking for this clemency. Yeah. So it's, it's an uphill battle. Don't get that wrong. But November 2017, laws had also changed by then. Um, minors could not be considered sex workers, and they had to be defined as victims of sex trafficking. So there's mm-hmm. that whole thing. Before, as a minor, she would not have been considered a victim of sex trafficking, and now she was. So there was yeah. a lot of sympathy. We got the Me Too movement that jumps in there and a lot of other stuff that's happening at this time to sort of change the flow of how people are thinking about young women like Santoya. Mm-hmm. And this change is really inspiring to those people involved in the case. Local news stations start running the story, and Santoya's story goes viral. And she starts getting support from people like Rihanna, Kim Kardashian, LeBron James, Snoop Dogg, etc. There's a hashtag free Santoya Brown. And her petition for clemency is filed then, and all the media outlets are covering this. Um, the governor then asks the parole board for their opinion. Okay. He's mm-hmm. not asking them to give him a decision. He's asking for their opinion on this because he feels like she will be testifying in front of them and they will know best how to deal with this. Right. So May 23, 2018 is the parole hearing, and she's been in jail for 12 years at this time. So they need to see that she has been rehabilitated and she can be a productive member of society and she's no longer a threat to anyone. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I think the panel was mostly white men, And Mm -hmm. a few white women, no minorities, and very kind of skewed in one way, okay? The witnesses all come in. They testify for her. Her family's there. Everyone is supportive of her, but the parole board was divided. Two people recommended, so there's six people on this parole board. Two of them recommended granting clemency. Two recommended denying clemency. And two recommended having her sentence lowered to 25 years from 51 before parole. Okay. This would mean she would still have 11 years to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so when this sort of thing happens, though, the governor can still make his own decision. He's not, dic- he's not um, forced to follow the parole board recommendations in any way. Right. It's advisory only. So on the last day that the governor is in office, he finally makes a decision on this. June 7th, 2019, the commute is granted for Centoya. And this is, do you have the governor's name? Is it Phil Bryant? I don't know. Okay. I don't have it. Um, she was sentenced to 15 years instead of the 51. So they reduced her sentence, which meant she only had seven more months to serve. And a good portion of this would be in a transitional part of the prison to get her out and mm-hmm. into the real world immediately. And she got married shortly after that decision. And then August 7th, 2019, 31-year-old Santoya Brown was freed. She would be, excuse me, she will be on parole until 2029. She now lives in Nashville with her husband, Jamie, and she has gone on a national speaking tour. She wants to go to law school and start a family, which I'm not really sure how getting a license, a bar license, if you have a 
conviction for a criminal act like that, how that right. would work out. Because right. it was my understanding that you could not get licensed if you had certain um, felonies on your record. But we'll see. Maybe they'll Yeah, I would imagine exception. she would like file some kind of like special something with the board, state board or whatever. Possibly. State bar. So she also published a memoir about her life. Um, about over a decade in prison, and she talks about everything in that memoir. She's very dedicated to exposing injustice in the criminal justice system and to helping others. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Netflix did a special earlier this year. I haven't seen it. I, I didn't really care to see it because of the mm -hmm. fact that they weren't really asking her on, on any of her input, and she's the most important person in this story. Mm -hmm. um, many critics say that the Netflix documentary, though, didn't focus on any issues with the criminal justice system that was more, more focused on her personal journey, which is interesting okay. because she didn't even give input and they're focusing on her personal journey. Right. Um, they didn't talk about racial injustice at all. They missed the mark completely on that. Wow. Um, the fact that it is so skewed in the prison system right now. Um, interesting. This case has just so many factors to it. Premeditation. Did she plan this? Did she actually, you know, what were her thoughts on this? Did she deserve her punishment? And then one thing that's also interesting to me is this is a very pretty young girl. What had, would this have ended up different if she was not attractive? If she was a dark skinned black woman rather than a light skinned black woman, would mm -hmm. this have played out differently if she wasn't such an attractive young girl? I think just in all, this is such a complex and emotional and political case. And there's just so yeah. many interesting elements here and circumstances and history, et cetera, that just make this a really, really interesting and challenging and emotional case for a lot of people. Now, she went to jail. She spent 15 mm -hmm. years in jail. She's out now, but by all accounts, it looks like she has made something of her life and she is making a difference and she is taking the time that she spent and, and trying to make a difference in the world. And I, I find that admirable. Yeah. Yeah, she did a bad thing, but she served her time and she is rehabilitated and it sounds as though she has really made a difference. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on with this. So... First of all, it's hard to unpack. Yeah. Trust yeah. me. So first of all, like studying what I study, being who I am, I'm a scientist. I have to, all I can do, whether or not like this was self-defense or whether or not this was murder, all I can do is just go on what the science says. And the science says yeah. that it was likely murder. Um, yes. I would like. Well, she was convicted. So. Well, yes. And I would like to, uh, on the flip side of that, I would like to believe that this was um, a self-defense thing because I do think that we should believe women and especially women in those circumstances. I do think that she was very likely taken advantage of, if not in this exact situation, in other situations with other men who had picked her up and by this cutthroat guy who was supposedly yes, her, her protector. But the other thing, and I understand that she was charged in criminal court and I understand they had to have a transfer hearing and this, that, and the other, and I understand why they did charge, move her to criminal, to uh, adult court. But Regardless of that fact, you have to take into the, the into account her age. Like I understand yeah. that the circumstances dictated that it needs to be a, an adult court um, case, but she's 16. Her your frontal lobe, which is the part of your brain that is responsible for decision making and impulse control and anger, that is not fully developed at as at, at, when you're teenage years. And I mean, we know that. Like we, there's sorry, been science published in that you know, area for years. So you have to take that into, into account when you're talking about should she be released or not. And so I agree with the fact that she should be released, especially when you look at the behavior in prison after 
after she had the sit down with her attorney where she was likely older you know she was older she was under she was more aware of her circumstances she was yeah. better equipped to make decisions she's probably living in the most stable situation unfortunately that's terrible to say but that's being in prison is probably the most stable circumstances that she had lived in for quite some time you know well, she mean? probably got medication she probably got counseling she i probably don't got know that she job got training. medication counseling i don't know that she got that in prison we're not historically very good at that but she had stability i mean that's you know what i mean and i i mean i don't know i don't know the thing that i kind of come back to with this and i don't mean to sound crass or devil's advocate or whatever but i why why her there's there's so many women that this happens to Mm-hmm. Why was her story the one that was picked up, um, you know, and become because the cause of a gorgeous young and, woman? And I think that goes back to your point. I right? feel like there are so many unattractive, uh, I hate to say it like that, who have been in exactly the same place and have not gotten this media attention. Their cases haven't gone viral mm-hmm. and they're stuck in there in the same thing. Yeah. And I think the same I think it's less about right, wrong, good or bad in terms of her circumstances and more to me. I think it's more that I would rather see cases like this where there are vict- minor victims of sex trafficking, where where they get justice and where they get help that they need and mm-hmm. not where they get punished. Because that's yeah. I mean, that's just frankly the situation. And I would rather see cases like this. More cases like well, this I, that, that I, get I have to the interject. Light. They do need to be punished. But what is that punishment? Is it 25, 50 years in jail? I don't necessarily think that's a good alternative either. Right. But what what is the punishment? A rehabilitative punishment. Yes, and so, exactly. I, I guess is kind of what more I meant. But like. Yeah, right. There, I mean, there's just a lot going on. And, and I mean, I'm very glad that she was able to change her circumstances and but there's so many people that don't have the resources that she was able to get because she was a cause celeb you know that 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 don't end up being granted clemency and things like that and i think that i would like to see more of that yeah i think that the sex trafficking issue in this country is just outrageous Mm -hmm. there are so many young women and men now too Mm -hmm. that are in situations that are completely beyond their control and they just feel hopeless and we're throwing them away. We're not there to help them. And when they do act out and, and try their best to survive, they get thrown away. They get thrown into jail and we throw the key away. Right. So, um, do I think that they should be able to get away with murder? Do I think that they should be able to commit crimes, um, and not be punished? No, but there's gotta be some way that we can help this huge group of people and not, it's almost like the way we help is very discriminatory now too. We pick and choose who we want to help when they have this amazing celebrity story or they're attractive or they're whatever. But there are plenty of people out there that are not so attractive that may not be as appealing mm-hmm. that are, we're still struggling in the system and no one has reached out to help them because they're not as, they're not as newsworthy to the media sources. And for what, I mean, I don't know why her story became a viral sensation. I mean, I, I, I just don't know. The circumstances lined up for her. And I think that that's great that she's able been able to do something with that and change her life. But there's, for every one of her, how many are, that do we not hear about? Yeah. You know? But I think it's important, too, to know how she has used that celebrity yes. how she has used that and she has done something where she is trying to go out and help other people yes which to me makes a huge difference yes had she come out 
of this experience with all that help and all that social media attention and just decided, well, I'm going to go live my life and have babies and, and buy, mm-hmm. then I think I would probably feel different about this. But she has used that celebrity for the good, the greater good of society, and to try to help with the criminal justice system, which I find very, very admirable. admirable. And I, I respect her tremendously for that. Yeah, she was in a crappy situation. She acted on impulse. She did a very bad thing. But when do we stop that punishment and let them get on with their lives because they've served that time? Especially the crime that she did go ahead. was bad. Yeah, especially at 16. She shot him. Yeah, she shot him in the back of the head while he was sleeping, presumably, yeah. which is bad. But she didn't torture anybody. She didn't, you know what I mean? It just, I think, was an impulse on the, at the moment type of situation. It's not like she sat, I think, and premeditated and, and decided she was going to go into a mall and, and sh- randomly shoot a group of mm-hmm. people sort of a thing. So... There's got to be a difference in how they treat people like her versus like a mall mass shooter who's 16 who goes into a mall and kills, you know, 150 people with a semi-automatic weapon. I just feel like there's no distinction now between the, those sorts of crimes anymore. It's murder is murder and that we treat them all the same. And they all get the same sentence and we have these mandatory guidelines that dictate for the court how they have to do things regardless of the circumstances behind it and regardless of the ability to rehabilitate the individual. Right. I think, I think, and this is again where I'm just going to have to fall back on what I said earlier. I think age really does play a big thing in that not to lessen a punishment or let anybody get away with anything, but when you're looking at the rehabilitative opportunities, age has to be considered. Yes. But then again, we all know as well how crappy our system is for rehabilitation. Yeah, yeah it's definitely like, systemic. We suck. Yeah. And we basically are just interested in throwing people in jail. We don't care about rehabilitation per se. Um, it's not a huge factor. We don't study it enough. We don't try different things out in this country. And I think that the jail system is just like this holding cell for people that we want to get mm-hmm. rid of or we don't want to have to deal with rather than a rehabilitative process where we take individuals that have trouble and help them be productive members of society. Right. That's what we say we're trying to do, but are we doing that? I don't think right. so. Otherwise we would not have courts or excuse me. Otherwise we wouldn't have jail cells filled with black men in America. Right. So that's my spiel. Yeah. I'm sorry. I had to get up on a soapbox for a second there. <laughs> that's a hard one. This but, is a hard one. Yeah, it is. It's a very, very interesting case, and I am so glad to hear that this young woman is doing well. She's got a long, full life ahead of her. She's going to do big things, hopefully, with that, and I'm glad that she was able to find the things that she needed, the resources that she needed to get out mm-hmm. and to become a productive member of society and to help other people. Uh, that's the biggest takeaway, I think, for all of us. And we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for now. If you have anything else to add? I don't. All right. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast and send us questions, comments, or suggestions at our email at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We're going to put that into the show notes, a social media at our Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, so, you know, we'll post all of that information with the shows and everything like that too. Um, and then also check out Sarah's Instagram, Cooper's with a Z, human. <laughs> uh, fill out the house renovation pictures because they're really fun. Sweet. Awesome. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.